Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are an award-winning, chart-topping podcast, or some people call us an oddcast, for those who value real, different dialogues about how to build a legendary business and a legendary life. Today, a very big conversation about how to drive real social and political change with a guy who's a Stanford lecturer, who is a former advisor to Governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and today is the founder of Govern for California. His name is David Crane. And uh, David's got a big brain, and we go deep on uh, why state and local governments matter so much and matter in ways that the federal government doesn't as it relates to uh, yours and my day-to-day life. What really drives politicians? How the call we are having right now for social and racial change in the U.S. could actually lead to not much change at all and what needs to happen in order to make real change occur. This is a stunning conversation with a fascinating guy. And interestingly enough, David tends to lean more left. However, he advised and served, you know, a Republican governor. And so he is issues oriented more so than party oriented. And regardless of your politics, This is a conversation worth getting into because you're going to learn so much about how real change happens and what you and I can do as citizens if we want to be part of designing the communities and ultimately the nation and the world that we want to design. And I know I say it, but um, a dialogue podcast is the only way to really get into it with a guy as compelling as David Crane. And I know you're going to love this one. Visit my friends at Splunk.com slash D, the number two and the letter E. Learn how to turn data into doing. That's Splunk.com slash D to E. And my friends at NetSuite from Oracle are the world's number one cloud business system. You can check them out at NetSuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. And if you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or marketer who cares about driving growth, why not check out the number one charting marketing podcast, Lockhead on Marketing. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. So, David, it's great to meet you. Same here, Christopher. Thank you so much. I, I, I can't wait to sort of get into your brain. Well, prepare yourself. You'll, you might be very happy when you leave it at the end of the session. <laughs> I don't know how deep anybody ever wants to get into state and local politics, but welcome. Well, it's such a fascinating topic. And as I was consuming your TED Talk from a few years back, it just... You know, there were some things I knew, some things I didn't know, but it really was uh, a bit of a cold shower on how the American system works. And so uh, I have a million questions for you, but I'm, I'm curious, w- where do you want to start? What's on your mind right now? Well, uh, the number one thing that's on my mind is what people can actually do to move the needle. You know, I, I'm 66 years old. I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. I was in the in the draft during the Vietnam War. I you know, was interested in politics from a very young age. I'm the kind of person who I grew up in Denver, but, uh, you know, when they had the riots in Newark in 1966, when they had the Kerner Commission report, I read it, you know, when I was in high school, I cared deeply about politics and policy. And so the, 
one of the arguments I've been having with my kids, especially my daughter, is is whether this time is different. And I'm talking about uh, civil rights right now. And um, I tend to be very skeptical and cynical about people actually doing things to move the needle because I've seen it from the inside, you know, having been in government for se- for seven years and then being in the outside of government, but a political activist after that, you see that the people that actually get things done are those who are like Lyndon Johnson. They focus on it to the exclusion of everything else and they treat it like a business and they win. And the special interests do that. And so if there's if there's something I would love to get across today, it's what people can actually do to move the needle. Yeah, I find that fascinating. And I think a lot of us are uh, asking that question. Uh, I live in Santa Cruz County. And as mm-hmm. C-19 was starting, um, there were some things that it looked like the county did that were smart. Uh, and there were a lot of things that the county did that, in my opinion, looked pretty stupid. Uh, are you a scuba diver by any chance, David? I've done it a couple of times, but I'm not a professional, you know, I'm a risk taker, I guess. Have you ever heard the scuba diving expression that says you can't suck and blow at the same time? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but it makes sense. And, and so, at least in my opinion, there was some sucking and blowing going on where the county was restricting this and saying we should do that and so forth and so on, but had the beaches open and we were getting mobbed. And there was a handful of us citizens who, and this is really the first time I've ever done anything like this, who decided... Um, we were going to put a tremendous amount of pressure on our political leaders to be transparent mm-hmm. and to take action. And they finally started disclosing what was going on with C-19, our preparedness, and then they finally shut the beaches. But all that is to say, um, I had this personal experience very recently where local government, in my opinion, was fucking up. Mm-hmm. And I had to figure out how to do something about it to try to make a difference in my community. And so I guess that leads me to a big question. It it seems like a huge part of your life has been somewhere along those lines. You don't like what's going on and you want to try and do something about it. Is that, is that a fair assessment, David? It is. I did spend 25 years in business because I needed to make a living. Uh, But even when I went into business, I wanted to be out of business after 10 years. I had a plan uh, to make some money so we were secure. And then I'd go into politics at some point. I thought I'd spend 10 years in business. I ended up spending 25. Finally, the year I turned 50, I said to my wife, or the year I was turning 50, I said to my wife and to my business partners that no matter what I'm leaving at the end of this year, I'm going to burn this sh- these ships uh, if I'm ever going to do anything in politics and policy that will require me to to leave this. I immediately panicked. Uh, like anybody does who'd spent 25 years in one career and said to themselves, oh my God, now what do I do? And it was completely serendipitous that that year the recall election came along in California and Arnold Schwarzenegger throws his hat in the ring and asked me if I would help. And I had known Arnold for uh, more than 20 years and uh, that's another story. But I had uh, I thought I knew everything about politics and policy, and that was my principal interest in life. And I got up to Sacramento, and I learned I knew nothing. And it just blew me away at the age of 50 to learn that the area that had sort of been my avocation uh, that I thought I really knew, I didn't know. So that's a long answer to your question. Yes, this has been what I've always been interested in, but it's pretty remarkable that it took me so long to figure out how it actually works. Hmm. So maybe say more about that. 
the the principal thing is when I got up to Sacramento, I one of the first things that staffers up there said to me is they called themselves themselves weebies, as in we be here when you're gone. And so everybody goes to Sacramento or they go to Washington with the intention of making big change, but they find out that they're really, it's very difficult to do unless you know the way the game is played. And so new people that go up there really don't know the way the game is played and it's a business. Let me, let me give you the perspective. The state of California alone this year will spend $300 billion dollars. A hundred billion alone on K through twelve education. A hundred billion dollars alone on Medi-Cal, which is, you know, Medicaid for now more than thirteen million Californians. One in three Californians is covered by Medicaid. Well, the principal recipients of that two hundred billion are employees and corporations, and their customers, the state of California, they will pay very serious attention all the time to what's going on with that government, and they're in the state capitol every day. And the legislators and the governors see them all the time. And so that is what you learn is the way things really work. And most people find out like you did. You found out your local government wasn't doing what you thought they should be doing when COVID arose. You decided to get involved. But you probably really wondered why wasn't it operating properly before that? And that's largely because the rest of us are not deeply involved on a daily basis in government. And... Uh, it's a bit of cold water in a sense because the job never ends. You can't just jump into this for a while and then jump out because the special interests will always be there. So it's, uh, if you ever read de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, America was, it's a federalist system and people were supposed to spend a lot of time in state and local politics and they didn't. And the results are we have pretty bad state and local politics. Well, I'm ashamed to admit, David, after I consumed your spectacular TED Talk, sort of, uh, was it, is it called What They Don't Want You to Know or something like that? They count on you not knowing. That's what it's called. Great. And we'll uh, yeah. we'll put a link in the show notes for folks. But uh, one of the stunners, I'm sitting there listening to your talk not long ago, and you make the point of most people, how, how most of what the government does is actually state level. And the federal mm -hmm. federal government has less to do with our daily lives than maybe we thought. So that's that's definitely an aha. But the other one you sort of smashed me in the face with is and most people, they know who their federal senator is, but they don't know who their state senator is. And I thought, I have no fucking clue who my state senator is. I've never even heard of him. And the stunning thing, which made me more mad at him than me, is we're having this triad crisis right now of a pandemic, a recession, and, and a, I don't know what to call it, a race awakening. And the mm -hmm. fucking guy has been completely absent. Mm -hmm. I had to look his ass up after I heard your talk. And so um, what is it you want? What's the big aha here that you want people to take away in terms of particularly state and local government? So, uh, by the way, you're going to have a new state senator in November. You, we already know who it's going to be. I'll come back to that in a second. And he's a good man who you should get to know and you should pay attention to all the time. So he's listening to you. Let's come, make sure we come back to that. Uh, so the, the, what I want everybody to know is what you said just a second ago, which is we live in a federalist system of government, state and local governments are responsible for 90% of domestic services. As a pundit once put it, I can't remember who it was, but it's just a brilliant way to put it. The federal government is an insurance company with an army. 
Uh, that is largely what the federal government does. It spends more than $4 trillion a year, and most of that is a transfer payment to older people like me. I'm 66. I'm entitled to Medicare, which I'm on, and uh, I don't take Social Security, but I will later. Um, most of federal spending is transfer payments. Uh, the operations are really in the Defense Department. And even that isn't that big. It's smaller now than than federal spending on Medicare and Medicaid and the Veterans Administration, uh, which is a business they do operate, the Veterans Administration. But state and local governments do everything else. Public education, public safety, public transportation. And that's why there are four times as many employees in the state and local government than there are in the federal government, even though, though the federal government spends much more money. Can you just say what you just said again, just so that it registers in my database? State and local governments have four, five times as many employees as the federal government does, even though the federal government spends more money than state and local governments. State and local governments are predominantly about services provided by employees. K through 12 is the biggest service. Public safety is the biggest service in local governments. If you were to look, I've never looked at the city of Santa Cruz's uh, comprehensive annual financial report, which I recommend to all of you, but of course nobody will read. But uh, generally public safety spending is the biggest expenditure by most local governments. So they have they do less spending at state local governments, but uh, they provide greater services and they have more employees. Yet, and, and people's lives on a daily basis are much more affected by their state and local government than by the federal government. Yet everybody will know the name of the president, your U.S. senator, your other U.S. senator, probably your congressperson, but your state senator, who is going to be a fellow named John Laird, more important than your current one, because the current one sort of probably checked out. I think it's Bill Monning is actually your current one. That's right. Um, and by the way, it's funny. But, it's funny you say that. I hate to interrupt you, but I'm gonna. Yeah, please. It's as your I, show. <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's yours. <laughs> anyway, it, this guy, Bill Morning, who I discovered re- recently is my state senator. I'm reading his bio and just from reading his bio, and I know this makes me a horribly judgmental, shallow asshole, but I'm reading his bio and I think, Wow, this guy sounds kind of dusty. I bet you this guy hasn't <laughs> done anything in a long time. Now, was I being overly unfair to Bill? Yeah, you you are being overly unfair. And, so, and I'll come. Uh, well, I shouldn't just come back to it. So, but let me just remind the, your new state senator is going to be a guy named John. So John is a, a very knowledgeable guy. And the point I was making is that even if Abraham Lincoln represented your district, he would have an impossible time getting anything done in the California legislature unless he could collect 61 other votes to get anything done. So there are 80 members of the state assembly and 40 in the state Senate. So to get anything done, you need 41 votes in the assembly and 21 in the Senate. And he's only one and he's only in one body. So let's say you're Abe Lincoln and you want to do something great and you're in the state Senate. You need to get 20 of your colleagues to agree then you got to get 41 people in the next body, in the other body to agree, and then you got to get the governor to agree. And they all want something from you. That is the way politics works. So John Laird's going to represent your district, and he's going to want to do things which are beneficial for his district. Some, let's say he's going to want to do something, and let's say it's something big, like you know Lincoln got the 13th Amendment done in the the U.S. Congress. Somebody in the state legislature is going to want something in exchange for that vote. And and if if you 
if you want a very good sense of the way it works, Robert Caro's biographies of Lyndon Johnson are the best guides I've ever read, especially the volume entitled Path to Power. And it describes how Johnson, in a single month in 1940, he arrived in Congress in 1937. In a single month in 1940, he went from being a supplicant member of Congress to a powerful member of Congress, of the House of Representatives, just by bundling donations from people in Texas to some other members of the House from around the country, who then started to owe some allegiance to him. And, and so the world that they operate in, John Lair or whoever it's going to be, that's the kind of world that they operate in. To get anything done, you got to get other, a bunch of other people to agree, and they all want something from you. So I, I personally have a terrible temperament for that kind of environment. I'm more autocratic. Um, it takes an exceptional, an exceptionally different temperament from mine to succeed in the legislature. So I'm more sympathetic to legislators than most people. There are some very bad ones who care only about themselves, but most of them I found actually genuinely do care about something greater than themselves. I, I don't have anywhere near the experience that you do, of course, in this in this area, but that, with my limited experience with elected officials, that has been true, that, that at least they seem to want to be good people and um, they're not, they're trying to do this for, you know, good reasons. Now, I, I'm also, you know, I'm not an idiot. I understand there's evil in the world. I understand there's people who are up to nefarious shit, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I don't know. It just seems like to me, like if somebody uh, like you says, I want to get involved with this stuff and I'm going to leave a, a longstanding business career to do it. Yeah, I guess the cynical could say, well, you're a power hungry asshole. Uh, that, that's one perspective. And, and another mm -hmm. perspective is, well, you're a guy with a 30 year plus or minus business career who now wants to try to make a difference and you're going to try to do it. I don't know. You'll tell me if somewhere in between is the right answer. But um, I think it yeah. seems like a lot of people get into politics because they want to help. Yeah. So the answer is, if you really are power hungry, you're not going to get it generally by going into politics because there's very little power. So if you're a, a member of the U.S. Senate, pick up anybody that each individual legislator has very little power. They do get a fair amount of press. So for many of the politicians who I don't admire, it's more about, you know, acclaim and fame than it is about actually having power. They just want to be, some of them just want to be recognized or they want to be famous. Um, but if they want power, politics generally isn't the place to get it. <laughs> I tell you, even if you become president or governor, I saw it firsthand, uh, especially in Western states where, where our constitutions tend to be more populous than the Eastern states or the, or the Midwestern states. If you're a governor in California, you can get next to nothing done uh, without the consent of 62 legislators. So people, uh, you ask the question of me, why did I go into it? It's what I love. I mean, I, my walls when I was 15 years old in my home in Denver were covered with posters of Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, I was completely devoted to politics from a very young age, and I don't know why. And um, I was nerdy about it. Uh, one of the reasons that um, it's pretty funny, actually, it's actually kind of a funny story. When Arnold and I met, which was in the late 1970s, what we found that we had in common was was a mutual interest in politics. He was, you know, a, then becoming an actor. Uh, we have, if you met me in person, you would see for yourself that we obviously don't have bodybuilding in common. And we found that we had politics 
in common. And Arnold was dating Maria Shriver then. And so we would be having these conversations about political issues. And in the late 1970s, I don't know how old you are, but in, you know, it was, uh, you know Jimmy Carter was president. I supported Carter. Arnold was uh, not a U.S. citizen. If he could have voted, though, he probably would have voted for this guy, Reagan, who was going to be running in 1980. Uh, Maria supported her uncle, Teddy, who was challenging Carter for the nomination. Uh, and, you know, there was the Iranian hostage crisis, the energy crisis. We had stagflation, et cetera. There were, I mean, the oil crisis. Uh, I, I'm 52. so I was yeah. young, but I mean, I remember uh, watching TV and seeing lines of people to get gas. Right. I mean, it was. Yeah. People were not happy under the Carter administration, as I remember it. That's right. And so and we had the Iranian hostage crisis. And we are still in the middle of the Cold War and the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan and more. And Arnold and I, even though he couldn't vote and he was not going to be a Carter supporter and and Maria would give me grief that I was supporting Teddy. Arnold and I kept that I wasn't supporting Teddy Kennedy as she was. Arnold and I kept finding ourselves in agreement. And at one point, Maria said to me, David, you're not a Democrat. And I said, Maria, go back and read the 1960 Democratic Party platform that your uncle John F. Kennedy wrote. And you tell me which one of us is closer to that Democrat. Now, I'm telling you that because that's how nerdy I was. I would actually not when 1960, I was too young to read it then, but I read it later. I am a JFK Democrat. I know what the 1960 Democrats said. Jimmy Carter was closer to that than Teddy Kennedy was. So you asked me why I got into this. It's just whatever reason. I love politics and policy. And then I also worry tremendously about what's going to happen in our democracy. Most republics in human history, there have been very few of them, all have failed. Most of human history is autocracy and dictatorship. Americans take their democracy, their republic for granted, and I don't. So that's, those are the reasons that I'm involved. Well, and, and God bless you for that, because I think we're, we're all getting a, a front row seat here to, if we're not involved, then shit might not go the way we want it to. And so I think if, if we've learned anything, I don't know, you'll tell me through this time that we're in now is if we want to make the world a different place, then we need to get busy. Yeah, I'll tell you that I'll be unskeptical that anything will change. Let me give you, explain to you what's, what I believe happened and will happen. So th this public safety issue, we live in the most progressive state in the country, at least the way our politicians talk. And full disclosure, I'm a Democrat and quite progressive on a number of fronts. We live at, most of our politicians talk a very big progressive game. Most of them walk a very regressive walk. They, uh, in the most progressive parts of the state, they regularly talk about what they do for poor people and people of color, but they have mostly been boosted through their political careers by taking political contributions from public safety unions, or more importantly, since they don't want to be spent against or opposed by public safety, they have gone soft on public safety. So California has a, a law known as POBOR, Peace Officer Bill of Rights. The Minneapolis policeman who murdered George Floyd in California could not even be suspended without pay. It could be suspended, but not without pay under POBOR. Now, that law could have been changed forever. 
in California's legislature. Determinate sentencing, which is the statutory legislation that in 1975 California enacted that sent our prison population skyrocketing like a hockey stick, was just statutory, which means all it took is a governor and 62 votes for every year after that to change it. And California, the most progressive state in the country, did not. And so what most people will do is talk and protest and then they'll go back to their business or they'll go back to their hobbies or they'll go back to their Instagram and the same old, same old will take place Will legislators will be supported by public safety and others. I, uh, probably the best example in California, your legislators who represent Santa Cruz have voted for every one of the salary increases for state prison guards. They've got six over the last decade. They were already the highest paid prison guards in the country. Your legislators in your progressive county voted for those leg- for those salary increases, even though that spending, which amounts to about $10 billion a year now in comp and benefits for only 57,000 employees in that department, that spending takes money directly away from social services, the University of California, including the University of California at Santa Cruz, CSU, and courts. But your legislators will never tell their their constituents that that's what they're doing. And your constituents, since they don't pay attention to the bills and don't pay attention to the memorandums of understanding, which are the contract negotiations with the prison guards, will not know these things. But the prison guards will. And you can't blame them because they run it like a business and they have the right to defend themselves and get as much money as they want, as they can. So... It's a job. I mean, it's a, you got to be ruthless. It's a, it's a business. You can't just go out and protest and then go back to your cocktail party. So, man, are you ever where I hoped we'd get to? <laughs> so uh, just full disclosure, I'm not associated with either party. Uh, there are things about both parties that I think are spectacularly awesome. And there are things about both parties that terrify me to the core of my being. Uh, so there's no collective party in the United States that represents my thinking. And I Look, I I think like a reasonable number of people, I'm fairly socially Democrat leaning and I'm fairly economically uh, Republican leaning uh, on on law enforcement. I think I'm more Republican than Democrat, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't wake mm-hmm. up in the morning and go, oh, I have a fucking team. I wake up in the morning and go, what do I think's right? What do I think works? And, and how do we uh, and this is where I'm going. How do we design a society that works? And as it relates to the point I think you're on, I think defund the police is not just a bad idea. It, it's certainly not, you know, some people say, oh, it's just bad messaging. It, it doesn't mean defund the police. It's bad messaging. <laughs> no, it's fucking a bad idea and it's bad messaging. As a three-time public company CMO, I know bad messaging when I see it, but I also know mm-hmm. a bad product. And the idea is a dumb idea. Because the reality is four out of 10 murders in our country go unsolved and two thirds of rapes go unsolved. And when your brother gets murdered, I know exactly what you want the sheriff to tell you because I've been there. And so Mm. I think defund the police is a very dumb, dangerous. And I would even go so far as to say racist statement because violence in communities of color is higher than violence in communities uh, of white folks. However, all that said, and I'm, I'm leading to something here, David. What I do think is powerful is can we have a substantive, thoughtful discussion about community design? What's the kind of 
community? What's the kind of world we want to live in? What are our priorities? How do we fix social and racial injustice? How do we create a more level playing field of opportunity for everybody? How do we create a set of services that we believe in? How do we decide when somebody gets sick or hurt, what's going to happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so a thoughtful, sober, or at least in my case, slightly sober discussion about community and societal design, I think is incredibly powerful. But I think as a mantra, as an idea, something like defund the police is really dumb. And so I guess, what's your reaction to all that? I agree with you. So it's nonsense. It's nonsense. You need police. And um, so so let me tell you, I don't even think you needed a discussion. It's all about power. So politicians are very good at distracting people from their own failures. The murder, the, 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 the killing, it's not a murder yet because he hasn't been convicted, but the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis was done by a policeman and, and a man. I mean, I got, you know, we, we, I've been subject to crime. It sounds like you, you, your family has. And, and in the case up there where, where politicians have responded by saying that the cause was, you know, systemic racism or something like that, where everybody in the country is being accused. And that solves nothing because you can't solve that problem. Yeah. I mean, that is not the, re- the reason that that particular murder took place, that it's a distraction by politicians who don't do their job. One of the reasons they don't do their job is because they don't have the power. So, Public safety unions are very active in state and local politics, but most citizens are not. And um, most police officers are good, and there are some bad apples, just like there is in, in, in every organization. Politicians need to be in a position where they can do their jobs and uphold the law uh, and make sure that they feel very good police personnel, etc. And for that, they actually need more power. It really does come back down to power. Um, it, if you were to be alone with any California state legislator and they were honest with you and you go, this might be, be fun for you. You can search the records and you will see the support from public safety unions from, for the most progressive members of the California legislature or Congress. Use, use Kamala Harris right now. Who's a very good example. Somebody who all of a sudden is, is, quite public about police reform, but when she served as district attorney in San Francisco and attorney general in California, she was completely quiet on the subject. And why? Because she did not want to face them in her elections. So politicians need support from ordinary citizens for them to succeed. I, it's not a conversation, Christopher. It's it's about power. So uh, you know, I'm a student of of Robert Greene's on this, and I, I think everybody should read his book, Laws of Power. And I forget his exact terminology, so excuse me. But uh, the breakdown of power, I think, is very interesting. And in my life, my personal experience with power, you know, I was born with zero power, poor, relatively mm-hmm. poor, lower middle class, working class, um, started a company at 18. And whatever power I achieved, I achieved by working my way for it. You know, for me, entrepreneurship wasn't a way up. It was a way out and, and then became an executive and so forth. And, and I have experienced uh, positional power 
You know, in my case, when you're the head of marketing for a good sized public company, you have power, you have spending power, you have hiring and firing power, your words echo, you know, pow- you know, loudly, you set policy and you have power over employees, over, you know, it, it's, it, and it's very clear and it's contractual. So I understand positional power. And so I guess, I guess my point is I've experienced positional power and the place in my life that I'm at, and it sounds like maybe you are too, you'll hopefully tell me, I don't have any positional power in a traditional sense anymore. The only quote unquote power I have is my ability to connect and communicate and collaborate, uh, the quality of my ideas and my ability to influence and or learn and or educate. And so, and I guess my point in sharing that with you is, well, I understand and appreciate positional power and have enjoyed it because you can make things happen. It's cool. Um, I kind of like it better now. I like that I can't make very many people do anything because I'm the boss. I love mm-hmm. that the power that I have is my experience, my reputation, my ability to communicate, my ability to connect, my ability to collaborate, my ability to educate and learn. And so I, I guess my question is, if the system is set up in such a way that positional power is really distributed so that no one person, including the governor or the president, can get shit done on their own easily, if that's the design point, therefore, there's not that much positional power, but there's there's this more, I don't know what you want to call it, softer power. Isn't that a good thing or is it a bad thing or how do you think about it? I generally think um, that it's a good thing when you have uh, checks and balances. So I like that. Um, but uh, you don't have checks and balances when the only people that are giving power to the governor and the legislature are special interests. So you have it. It's like carrying a knife to a to a gunfight. So um, I don't know what you, you know, your view was of the public schools in, in California, but they tend to operate very poorly despite very, very fast growing spending. And that's largely because the California Teachers Association is very powerful with state legislators. And so they're most, uh, let me give you a perfect example. We have a law in California known as LIFO, last in first out termination of teachers. By law, when school districts lay off teachers, as they're doing in Sacramento City Unified right now, even before COVID, they were laying them off. By law, they lay them, they lay them off of last in, first out, no matter how good they are. Now, you would never do that when you were in your business. You, you and I, when we were both in business, the employees that we hired and fired, we chose them based upon merit. But you could take the greatest teacher in the world and they're laid off early in because just because they were the last one in this is a tenure issue is it not no that's separate from tenure because tenure even if you're granted tenure tenure you're granted in, in california after two years but even if you're granted tenure if you're the last one in let's say you've worked there three years and they haven't hired anybody new since then and they're engaging in layoffs you're the first one out no matter how good you are I was in one union in, in my life. Um, I was yeah. a hospital worker as a very young man. Um, uh-huh. I know how to shave your privates if you need a hand with that. Uh, <laughs> not not that I want to, but <laughs> <laughs> but I, I digress. Um, but the the union structure that I was familiar with was exactly that. Was it was all ba- the, the magic word was seniority, right? And seniority was the only sort of. Uh, marker that could be used. And it seemed to your point to me to be completely asinine because 
Um, it should be merit-based, performance-based. Correct. And it and here, it's law. When you were in your union, it was by contract. And they negotiated it every time. Yeah. But here, it's law. There's not a single legislator in California who thinks that's a good law. So if I have 25 years experience as a teacher, the likelihood I'm going to get fired is low. And if I'm a shitty teacher, it doesn't matter. Is that is that what the law says? Right. So th- so there's not a single legislator who thinks it's a good idea. Well, maybe there are one or two. But so you would, you would ask me, why haven't they changed it then? It's entirely about power. They don't have enough power. They'll get whacked. If they bring up that issue right now, the California Teachers Association, who, again, I don't blame. They're just doing their job. They will make sure that legislator suffers a negative consequence. And every legislator privately will tell you this is the way it works. But why don't people stand up like, you know, so John Laird, our, our new guy here in Santa Cruz, why doesn't John yeah. stand up and say, hey, listen, this uh, LIFO business is bullshit. And uh, sorry, you guys go, got to go fuck yourself. I'm going to go educate the California population as to why this is bullshit. And you could take your money and shove it up your ass. Why doesn't if this is a bad thing, I'm not educated. So I'll just yeah, take yeah, your word yeah. that it is. But yeah. why wouldn't a John Laird or whoever else in the state in the state Senate? just sort of shoved the middle finger up in the air and said, we're going to go get this fixed. Because they'll get nothing done and they won't get it fixed. You need 62 votes to get it fixed. A state senator, you don't even know his name and you, you're a smart guy. 99% of Californians don't even know the name of their state senator. No state senator is going to go around the state and convince 40 million or 20 million Californians that this is a bad law and they should change it. And by the time they got around to doing it, they would have no power in the state legislature because it's all about power. So, so think about this. The only way you have power inside the Senate is to become chair of a committee. So every bill goes through a committee. The chairs of the committees have a lot of power. The pro tem, like the majority leader, has the most power. Well, who, who does the pro tem choose to be the chair of, let's say, the education committee? Somebody who can raise a lot of money, et cetera, et cetera. That is not going to be someone who is going to piss off the California Teachers Association, who, again, I don't blame because they're just pursuing their own interests. So people like Laird or pick whoever it's going to be that would be strong on that issue would be pissing in the wind if they were to do if they were to stick up their middle finger and yell and say this is a bad idea unless they can get 61 others to agree with them. And that for that to happen, they need people like us, you, me, and others to bundle donations to them. And it, it really does get down to, the, it's like protection money. you got to constantly protect them. And they have to know they're going to be protected 10 years from now. Because if they take on a special interest in a difficult way, that special interest will make them pay a price 10 years from now when they're seeking some other seat or whatever. So, and this is sort of, and maybe I'm just stupid or late to the party, which is probably the case or... Not uh, as late as I was. <laughs> but um, the reality is uh, people in positions to make public policy need air cover from citizens to make that policy, if, particularly if it's change. So the, the aha that's happened for me recently is many of our elected officials to get important things done need a tremendous amount of air cover from the citizenry. And, and of late, uh, one of the things, of course, has been the support here in Santa Cruz that our chief of police and our sheriff need in the face of uh, some of these idiots who want to, quote unquote, defund the police. Mm -hmm. And so is what you're saying is 
the structure of our state government, never mind our federal government, is such that in order to get anything consequential done, really no one person can get that done. And so um, anybody who wants to get something important, meaningful done that you believe in, you as a citizen have to step up and figure out how to support that elected official to get that done because the structure is such that they can't get it done. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, you're a fast learner. You, you, I, I, in fact, I'm going to steal what you said. You said air cover. That is exactly what they need. So there are plenty of legislators who want to do the right thing. And you just said you need to give air cover to your police chief and others down there. You, that is the same thing in the state legislature. It's incredibly hard, even for Abe Lincoln, unless they've got protection. And that protection takes the form of even re- just regular small dollar donations. So, so at Government for California, we set up, we have, we're a network of 700 members. We're now the largest financier of members have been candidates for the legislature. But we also, that includes uh, 15 local chapters. We even have a Santa Cruz one. And these chapters regularly donate small dollar amounts to legislators. And that makes all the difference in the world to these legislators. The dollar amounts don't have to be big. They just have to be persistent. They have to know that that air cover is there. So you you summarized it right. Hmm. And, you know, I, I've had a personal education uh, about this because I think there's a group of us that got together on C-19. And there's a group of us that got together on defund the police that seem to have made a pretty material difference on on the C-19 thing. uh, To put it mildly, David, me and a group of others started publicly body slamming our elected officials and Mm -hmm. and and mobilizing the electorate and and bombarding them with emails saying you better fucking do something or we're coming. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. I wrote, you know, emails and posts and I did everything possible to apply massive, massive pressure. Even, you know, I look back on it and I go, maybe this was over the top, but, you know, I threatened to spend a ginormous amount of money to have our health officer recalled unless things changed. And, Hmm. and they did. And then as it relates to defund the police, you know, same thing. And I could share with you what happened recently here in Santa Cruz, if it matters, but I never appreciated until pretty recently that if your Sheriff Hart or your Chief of Police, Andy Mills, here in Santa Cruz, you need help from citizens who are going to stand up, make noise, and drive an agenda that allows you to come in, if you will, underneath it and execute against that agenda. I, I, I wasn't paying attention. I didn't know that was true. Well, not the bigger ones, but the pernicious ones. Like, so I think on the one you talked about, yeah, people raising your voice the way you did, and you're obviously a powerful guy in your community and, and all the rest, people will, uh, and also people learn very quickly, they actually do need police. The more pernicious issues, the fiscal issues are harder to address that way. And you see it most clearly in the, in the, like the pension, the retiree health care sorts of issues that are affecting California and defunding that's we're actually defunding the schools for that reason. So this is the other thing I loved about, or I love about a lot of your work. It's in your Ted talk. It's in a lot of your writing, which is a lot of our politicians say X and do Y. And they're sort of hoping that the president's latest wackadoo tweet is going to keep your attention away from the fact that they said they were X and actually they're, defunding the schools. You're 100% right. 
That is exactly what happens. And they do count on the president, who is the gift that keeps on giving to them in California, because he always gives them something to distract the population from the truth. Well, and the other thing I find interesting about your work, and I don't know why more people aren't here. Um, You'll tell me if you think Bomber's helping with what he's doing. But your work seems to have a, 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 a somewhat of a focus. You'll tell me on, hey, where's the fucking money going? Yeah. And, and don't listen to what they say or any of that stuff. Look at where the money is and look at what's happening as a result of the money. And, and I, I forget what it's called now. You probably know. USA Facts. Yes, yeah. thank you. It's trying to exp- just take the government data and expose it in a way that's consumable, if I understand what he's trying to do. Yeah. But so I guess my question is, how come more of us aren't in tune with, hey, where's the money, Lebowski? Partly, I think one of the reasons is uh, that it money is, except for when people earn it, is 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 boring to a lot of people financial matters i think are boring to a lot of people but honestly i think it's people i started to raise the pension issue in california i got kicked off the board of the state teachers retirement system in 2005 for raising the issues about what what was going to happen if they didn't do the right thing then etc but nobody really started to pay attention in the legislature until i started to spend a lot of money in the legislature i there there's a great saying by upton sinclair about the difficulty of getting someone to understand something when their job depends on them not understanding it. And what I've discovered is in the state legislature, they start to understand a lot better now when people are donating to them. Well, and I'll tell you, I experienced it in my own life when I threatened our county supervisor with full page ads in the Sacramento Bee, the full page ads in the LA Times and full page ads in the Santa Cruz Sentinel about what a shit job they were doing. And that I would spend a massive amount of money to shine a light on the lack of transparency as it relates to our preparedness with C-19. All of a sudden, I had their attention. That'll get their attention. Yeah. And so is this is this a money issue? Is it, I mean, I, yeah. I, I know I sound naive, but is it just that simple? The money that influences them is, you know, is the puppet master that pulls the strings. Is it just that simple? Well, it's a little bit more complicated. So, for example, when you say you're going to spend money to out someone, that works. And you can do independent expenditures because they don't want to be embarrassed, right? But if you want to actually get something done, like, let's say, reform education, let's say you wanted to end the LIFO law or have tenure not awarded at all, or, or you know, maybe wait five years before you award tenure, th- those sorts of things. Um, you would need to regularly donate small dollars. The money that matters to legislators is the money that goes directly into their accounts. Because here's another thing you probably don't know, uh, but Lyndon Johnson understood quite well. Uh, What matters to legislators is the money in their own accounts because they then use that to help other legislators. And when they help other legislators, they earn their allegiance, which helps, helps them get votes, which is how they get to 62 votes or how they become speaker or they become in Johnson's case, majority leader in the U.S. Senate. So you got to give those, and the dollar amounts are small. It's like, a, you're in the business world. It's like a mispriced security, you know, in the investment world. Yeah. It's un- unbelievably small. So for example, um, this year, the prison guards will take down, or the corrections employees as a group will take down about $10 billion in comp and benefits. They will spend less than a million dollars most of them in direct donations to legislators, not exceeding $9,400 per legislator. And that's a return on investment that you and I probably never got in our own private sector experience. 
So it's it's really about persistence. It's it's about paying attention and regularly donating money. So the legislators are protected. It goes back to it. Does it go back to this air cover issue? Yeah. 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 You're a marketing guy. So you should be in charge of my business because (laughs) you got it. It took me it took me years to understand this stuff, but you got it very quickly. They need air cover. It has to be persistent and small dollars. Well, you know, and it's interesting. Years and years ago, when I was growing up as a kid, I saw this piece of graffiti that I have loved ever since it's stuck in my head. And the graffiti said, too many causes without a rebel. (laughs) That's good. Yeah, that's good. It stuck with me. And so let me just give you an example, one that's driving me crazy right now. Uh, PG&E, who I have now called PG&E evil, Uh has been ordered to pay for the campfire, which caused billions of dollars in damages and killed a ton of people and destroyed paradise california and i had to read it six times they've been forced to pay a three million dollar fine three million i I was like no 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 that's got to be three billion no it's 3.5 million and they they have admitted to the fact that they put profit over safety Mm -hmm. they didn't fucking take care of their shit there was one small technical carbodingulator that hadn't been replaced for 20 or 30 fucking years on some pole somewhere that caused that fire. And, and, and so I'm outraged by this. I don't understand where the fuck Newsom is on this. I don't understand how the fuck PG&E gets away with this. And so, nobody goes to jail, not a one. And they pay really, it's not even a slap on the wrist. It's a nothing. It's a rounding error. And yet they continue. And nobody in the media seems to give a fuck. It gets it gets reported on the local news. No, PG&E. And then we're on to the next topic. Like, how's that not? Where's the rebel on that? Well, historically, historically, uh, the regulators in California have largely been owned by the regulated. Um, And that's certainly been true in uh, with the PUC and, and PG&E. Not, not all utilities are as bad as PG&E has been, that's for sure. You would know more about why the press doesn't report it. I, I suspect other things have now become so much more important to people. Plus the, the fire campfire was, what now, two years ago? Oh, yeah. And and everybody pays attention to the fact that PG&E did go into bankruptcy and the shareholders did get wiped out, right? So, or largely wiped out uh, the so I, I I don't know enough about it, but I know enough to know about the regulators control are controlled by the regulated generally, and they donate to legislators. PG&E and others have been regular, persistent donors to state legislators, uh, just like all the other special interests. The general interest needs to be a regular donor, too. So I want to go back to this power thing with you. Is what it's going like? You look at Black Lives Matter as a great example. Mm-hmm. What everything that's gone on since since the killing of George Floyd, and and I think back on the Me Too movement. And one of our listeners shared this with me a long time ago, and he said, "You know, it's it's great all this stuff's going on, and it's great when people stand up and fight for justice and equality. It's all that's really good." But he said to me, "The world is not going to change." at least our part of the world, until white 45 to 75-year-old guys take a stand. 
It's one thing for women to stand up. It's one thing for people of color to stand up. But until the current power structure stands up, it's going to be really hard. Do you think that's the case? Well, it depends on what stand up means. So I, I, I'm much more into you. You know, I was a business person. And so what does it translate? What does it mean? Standing up doesn't mean anything. It, what exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about, for example, making sure that K through 12 schools are, uh, that the funds aren't being diverted, that 20% of the money isn't going out the door before it comes in the door so that the kids actually get taught, that teachers get enough money. What, what policies are we talking about? Well, that could very well be one of them. I'm not educated at all on that one. You clearly are. And I don't, then I don't think that has anything to do with white guys. You know, I'm 60, I'm a 66 year old white guy. I don't think that that has anything to do with 45 to 75 year old white guys standing up. I think it has to do with people paying attention to the way things actually work. I mean, I, in the city of San Francisco, there are 55,000 kids in K through 12 education in, in the, in this in the program here where spending has gone way up and there's been next to no change in performance and especially among black kids. And why? Because the money is definitely not making it to classrooms. A lot of it is going out to retiree healthcare, which isn't even necessary in California because all the people that are getting that subsidy get it, uh, are, are already covered by the Affordable Care Act now and by new middle-class subsidies for California. So, so I'm very substantive on these issues. What policies make a difference? So in this policy, it's a money issue. It's, a, it's the fact that, in, in your opinion, and maybe in many others, I'm not debating the topic, I'm, I'm just curious to unpack how the thinking works, that the money's going in the wrong place. We're increasing funding to education. It's not changing the outcome. It's certainly not changing the game for underserved uh, communities or communities of color. And nobody is dealing with the fact that there is a misallocation, in your opinion. I'll just accept that as the case for the yeah, sake yeah, of argument. Yeah, for this um, purpose. Yeah. yeah, but for this purpose, nobody's addressing the fact that the money's being allocated in the wrong way. Is that is that what I'm to understand? Yeah, no, it's worse than that. It's worse. You are, you are correct, except for it's worse than that. So right now in Sacramento, the state capital, the school district Sac City Unified with 47,000 kids, many of whom were low income, as I mentioned earlier, started laying off teachers last year, even really good young teachers, right? That is right in the state capitol. Um, the Assembly Education Committee, neither the Assembly Education Committee nor the Senate, uh, Senate Education Committee took up the issue of why Sac City is laying off teachers. And why are they laying them off? Because they're spending $22 million a year on retiree health care that, for example, the Ventura School District does not spend, that they don't need to spend at Sac City uh, f uh, for people that are already entitled, they're already covered by Medicare or Affordable Care Act or other things like that. So this is like a business, Christopher. You would know everything about your business, the one you're in now, and I'm telling you, this is like a business. Now, why are those legislators not speaking up? Because they are scared to death. They'll, they'll get whacked by the California Teachers Association. And that is not the fault of the Teachers Association. It's the fault of us yes. for not being there to protect those legislators. That's the other narrative that you return to that I find interesting about you, David. Whether it's teachers or prison guards or whoever it is that's uh, um, uh, essentially playing the game of jump ball for public funds, 
You don't fault them. If you're the teachers mm-hmm. union, your job is to get the best possible deal for the teachers. And you respect that, it seems. What you don't I respect do. is the electric not stepping up, the citizenry not stepping up and saying, hey, wait a minute. Um, we're not sure we're spending money in all the right places. And we've dug into the California state education budget. And there's some shit fucked up here that needs to get unfucked. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, there are two things I hate more than anything else. One is whiners, and that is true of most people when it comes to politics. And the second is hypocritical politicians. And California has more of the latter than anywhere else. The most progressive districts in the state are the ones that behave the most reg- in the most regressive fashion. So, so don't say that again there, handsome. The most progressive talking legislators in the state behave in the most regressive actions. There, there's no gulf greater than the words or spoken or tweeted, more often tweeted, by a progressive legislator in California, and then the gulf between those words and the actions they take when they're actually in the legislature. For example, East Bay legislators voting to boost salaries for prison guards, even though it takes money directly from uh, you know, the University of California. And so why isn't there more of a public debate on spending priorities because it requires work it requires yeah i'm sorry to cut you off but it requires drilling down it not just conversation it's like running a business the legislature considers up to five thousand bills a year they pass a thousand the governor signs on average 80 percent of them they 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 write 29 codes including the education code the criminal code the business and professions code the labor code the environmental code all those sorts of things they're they're coders if you will. And they know their codes and all the special interests know the codes, but the ordinary citizen does not. And so what do they do? They tweet or they skim the surface like most people, but they don't drill down. Whereas the special interests, and you can't blame them, will drill down. And, you know, and that's why my, one of my favorite lines, it's a sad one, is, you know, reportedly when, uh, when, after the Constitutional Convention was held and Benjamin Franklin is walking away, some citizens asked him, Mr. Franklin, what kind of government did you deliver? And his response was a republic, if you can keep it. Right. And so is the bottom line on this stuff, we need a more engaged citizenry? Yeah, it's what de Tocqueville said. It's what we were supposed to do. It's what what, everybody takes their democracy, their republic for granted. And in this case, it's extraordinary to me how much they do. And I I, I can still remember when I first was dating my wife in the 1970s, she had been born and raised in Marin County. And there was no place I found. And she was graduate from high school, like in 1975. And uh, I said none of them were none of her friends were aware of all the political issues around the world, et cetera, et cetera. And I just said, you know, what you all need is an invasion from the Soviets because people just don't pay attention to their republic and the danger that we constantly face. And, you know, maybe I'm too much of a worrier, but so few republics have, have even existed, much less lasted that, yeah, it does require diligence. So let's take C-19 as an example. Um, at the beginning, I remember there was this old quote from Reagan, um, and he said something to the effect of, you know, if, if, an, if an alien from outer space was attack, attacking the, the world, we would all unite and stop fighting with each other. 
and, and I remember when C19 started, I, for some reason that quote stuck in my head and, and I was thinking, okay, well now we're going to see a united planet dealing with this fucking problem. And, you know, here we are now with some meaningful percentage of Americans saying that um, what's really going on here is Bill Gates has a Sasquatch farm and he's trained, <laughs> he's trained the Sasquatches to install 5G and puke out the virus onto us with 5G towers such that he can make money on selling um, uh, the vaccine. Like, that's where there are people who think that. Yeah. There are definitely people that think that stuff. And so how the fuck are we in a place where we could not unite the United States against that? Or in the case of the George Floyd murder, we we seem unable to unite the United States on a very simple fucking idea. If there's injustice for one, there's injustice for all. If it's not a level playing field for one, it's not a, it doesn't work for all of us. And what this is really about is a fucking level playing field, is a, is a real meritocracy, et cetera, right? That, that to me is where this thing goes in my mind. And, and, and of course, there's some huge racial problems we need to get on, but what we need to, the bottom line of it is, it is about equal uh, equality, it is about equal opportunity, and it is about equal uh, treatment. And yet somehow, whether it's C-19 as a thing that we need to unite to deal with, or whether it's racism as a thing that we need to unite to deal with, we end up having these asinine discussions about whether or not masks are a good thing or are a punitive way of destroying our freedom. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm a, I don't think you'll ever get 330 million Americans. There are always going to be people that are going to believe in weird things, uh, you're not going to have the the world united in a view. I'm reading the book on the great influenza now about, you know, the Spanish flu. And, um, you know, you saw some governmental action there, but you didn't see great coordination necessarily uh, among those governments. They couldn't communicate as well then. But I, I just think even on the civil rights issue you just mentioned, I don't think that we have to address racism in total for everybody to make sure black kids in San Francisco Unified School District have good teachers in their classrooms. So I, again, I, I, I'm a little bit like a, a hammer where everything looks like a nail. And that's an example of where politicians want to distract people from their own failure. There is a reason that black kids are getting poor treatment in Sacramento City Unified. All the white, you know, richer families can send their kids to private school, maybe or move to the suburbs. And so it comes down to like, what are the details? We got to make sure kids get good schools. Uh, and that is about good governance. We're not going to get everybody to agree. Why is it hard to say, um, hey, listen, we need black kids to have good schools. We're going to fucking fund that. People will say that all the time, but then the devil's in the details. And so, for example, you, uh, I can, I'll can i show you exactly what will happen on that one. If you go to page 33 of the governor's budget, you will see a dramatic increase in spending on state schools over the last decade. The fastest growth in the country the last five years to more than $100 billion per year. You still have people saying the problem is we don't have enough funding for schools. But that's because they're not leveling with people that there's a backdoor out of which much of that money has been exiting so that it doesn't make it to classrooms. So it's not good enough to say, 
let's make sure we have this or that. It's the devil's in the details. You actually need the assembly education committee to have a hearing and say, why are they spending money on retiree healthcare when it should be going to, they can raise at LAUSD alone, LAUSD, which has some of the poorest kids in the country, 550,000 kids in that district, they could raise the current salaries of teachers there nearly $10,000 a year simply by one reform that everybody knows is a reform that they should do. So, And yet it doesn't happen. It's about power. It's power. If you want more details, in LA in particular, that reform is cemented into place by a by something that was done by the state legislature in 1992 that changes the makeup of the health and safety committee that oversee that that governs the health and safety benefits no health benefits i'm sorry health benefits of LAUSD employees so you would need the, an act of the legislature to change the makeup of that committee and you could free up 300 million dollars a year and why is that so fucking hard <laughs> because the unions would fight it you know, it's a collective action problem. So the seven members of the L.A. school board, only one of whom right now was somebody who would vote to do that. The other members, with the exception of maybe one, are largely backed by the teachers union, who, again, I don't blame, but who's very successful getting those people elected to the. I bet you don't even know the names of the members on your school board. No, no idea. So that they do. Right. So let me ask you this then, you know, one of the things I've been wondering about um, is, is the cost of elections. And I, I was originally born in Canada. Of course, elections are very different in, in, in um, yeah. Canada and most of the, the former uh, parts of the excited kingdom. They don't go on for very long. I can't remember exactly, but they're like eight right. or 10 weeks or something. And there's huge limits on, on campaign spending and so forth and so on. And so, and I, so point A, point B, I remember when, when Meg Whitman was running for governor, I seem to remember, you would probably know better than me. Did she spend near a billion dollars trying to become governor? 173 million. Uh, I thought it was more than that. Um, yeah. Are we, uh, is one of the candidates for president this year going to spend over a billion? I don't know. Are, are we, when, when do we get to a point where we have a billion between the two of them, they're going to spend a billion. Yes. Yeah, I, I guess, but but that, I believe that's a distraction too. So think oh, about it is. the math. Okay. I, think about the math. So the president will serve for four years, and uh, the annual spending of the federal budget's about five. Let's just say it's five trillion a year. So that's twenty trillion. And a lot of benefit. There'll be a lot of people that will benefit from that twenty trillion dollars of spending over that four year period. Um, and so the idea of spending a billion dollars or five hundred million dollars each. Uh, to run for that office or have people spend that kind of money to have you elected that office. It's not, it's, it's not far-fetched at all. I mean, the, the California Teachers Association spent $40 million on Proposition 30 in 2012, which is what raised our tax rates to 13.3%. Um, and the return to them was about $4 billion a year. Hmm. So uh, again, I, and, and so you're not that worried money, about campaign finance reform. That's that, that's not no, where your head's at. The issue. You think no, it's Meg, special interest I money? Told, I told Meg that uh, even if she won and when she was running, that she wouldn't have any power. No Republican governor in California was going to have any power, and and um, so it's yeah, so a lot. Of, notice that she's somebody who did not come from politics. Like another right. rich person from business, they think they you know because they're 
rich, they must be smart, and therefore they can fix these political problems. But politics is a the way things are done is very different. You need to get those sixty two votes, etc. Um, and no, I don't think campaign finance reform is the issue. I think people need to donate to legislators, not just a special interest. The special interest. They have the First Amendment. The unions can spend the money. So can the corporations. Let me just tell you, Christopher, you can tell your audience, go to opensecrets.org and look at how little is spent by pharmaceutical companies in Congress to control. They effectively have controlled the House Health Committees. And you probably know this, but under federal law, even Medicare, which is the largest purchaser of pharmaceutical products in the country, can't negotiate volume discounts. They're the largest in the world, and they can't negotiate volume discounts, which you and I would do with if we were the largest purchasers of anything, right? We would get volume discounts. By law, they can't do that. Are you telling me that the uh, pharmaceutical industry has written laws that got passed that says that the government can't negotiate volume discounts with them? Correct. And um, But they don't write the laws. The Congress writes the laws and the president signs the laws. Now go take a look at opensecrets.org, the donations made to members of Congress, especially the House Ways and Means Committee or, or the House Health Subcommittee, and you will see for yourself that it's very little money. It's a mispriced security, but nobody else is donating. So there's not an offset to it. So if they, if legislators were regularly protected by the general interest, they would be more willing to say, look, you know, pharmaceutical companies, we're going to negotiate volume discounts. So are we just naive, David, to think that we can get the American population to stop paying attention to Kardashian ass selfies and actually give a fuck about the way our uh, republic is, is organized, run and funded? Yeah, I don't I do not think that we will get 330 million or any large fraction of them, but you don't need that many. So you really don't. You just need to be persistent. So the, the if you look at the special interest and what they spend, they're focused and persistent, and a small group of people doing the same thing can be just as powerful. I really, that's the thing that maybe I'm naive about, and maybe I'm on a fool's errand, but I certainly believe it. And I think we've already demonstrated it at Government for California, being the largest financier already, with just 700 members, but the legislators need to know that we're going to be here forever, just like, you know, the prison guards. We're not going away. Yeah, that's why I need to find my successor already. They need to know that it's not so dependent upon me. And we have these 15 chapters, which are co-chaired, each one by, by two people from different parts of the state. And there are a lot of young people, including former students of mine from Stanford, et cetera. And, uh, you know, the legislators are starting to see we're having a, a call today with the state legislator, with two legislators today, where we're having uh, uh, 15 members of the Government for California Network who are co-chairs of chapters speak with them and they will see that we're here to say that that's what we want them to the inference we want them to draw. And so maybe let's go there for a second, David. You, you've created this organization that's a political organization, but best I can understand your issues oriented, not uh, or, or policy oriented, less party oriented. Uh, but how, how do Correct. you think? Is, is that how you think about it? Absolutely, because most state issues. Remember that running schools and running Medicaid well and running prisons efficiently. These are not 
these are not, shouldn't be party issues, just the way COVID shouldn't be a party issue. We're talking about running a business successfully. The government is in the job of providing services and they do a lousy job. Did you, uh, I don't know if you've read my most recent thing about unemployment claims processing in California. I did see that, yeah. So up to 30% of first-time claims aren't addressed within three weeks. Can you imagine what it would be like if you or I had a family and lost our jobs and we couldn't have any income and we're waiting for three weeks to hear from the unemployment insurance office? It's criminal. It is criminal. That's a service. And that's not ideological or that's not Republican or Democrat. So we, we are interested in them actually doing their jobs well. And we know in some cases they're prevented from doing them well. And in other cases, it's because they generally, nobody pays attention, like unemployment claims processing. So it is not ideological. It's about liberating legislators to do their job. There, there are plenty of legislators who are sickened by the notion that their, their fellow citizens are not getting their unemployment claims addressed. Um, and our job is to make them feel free that they can wake up in the morning and say, this is the number one priority I'm going to address today. And I'm not going to rest until it's done properly. You know, Rhode Island quickly at the beginning of COVID teamed up with Amazon web, web services, created a new front end with legacy computers as old as Californians. And they didn't miss a single phone call. And they've addressed their unemployment uh, compensation issues and the same scale issue there. They, they had the same increase in unemployment from 3% to 16%, just like California. So it can be done. They plugged into AWS. Yeah. And they built a scalable system to deal with the unemployment claims in Rhode Island. And they were able to process them quickly. And we here in California did not. And a bunch of it's true of other states as well. And they've offered the, the coding language for free. They made it available. And I made it available to all the legislators. And so the folks in Rhode Island built this app and they're, they've open sourced it essentially. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. So at their, it's all on medium at, 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 at their own cost, they created this app and they've given it to the other States. Yes. (laughs) They did it uh, with uh, AWS, uh, Amazon web services. And and has California uh, taken them up on their offer? (laughs) No, not yet. And we're monitoring it. So we're on top of it. We have a research director who is, who won't let go and we are paying attention and we're uh, doing whatever we possibly can to try and get the state to address it, whatever, you know what they're going to do. They, they always say it's the same thing. They haven't, they need to staff up more, but that is not the issue. Hmm. What is the issue? It's a better front end. It's like every other, it's, it's like what you and I don't have today, a good <laughs> internet <laughs> connection, but they, uh, there's a digital solution to good unemployment claims processing. Remember at the very beginning of COVID-19, maybe we saw more in San Francisco. I don't know if Instacart's very active in Santa Cruz, but they had enormous problems at the beginning, overwhelmed. So did Amazon, apparently, and they solved their problems. Yes. Well, and this is a fascinating point. Uh, My good buddy, Doug Merritt, who's the CEO of Splunk, who's one of the most important kind of data platform companies around, Mm -hmm. you know, we've talked about this a ton. That one of the things that we have witnessed over the last several months is the digital divide between the public and the private sector. Mm-hmm. And if you look at an Instacart, an Amazon, a, a, a Walmart, a Costco, uh, et cetera, 
these companies have proven themselves to be a essential services, right? If Amazon and Walmart go down, we're in a lot of fucking trouble in yeah. this country. We have, we have a great thank you to say to all of those people who have kept pandemonium and, 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 and from breaking out. Completely agree. Completely agree. And the companies that have succeeded in serving the American people at this horrible time in part have succeeded because they're either digitally transformed or to the point on Instacart, David, they're native digital. And when you're native digital and your whole business is deep data insights around supply and demand and, uh, you know, changing demand and, and, and so forth and so on. You could retool your whole business so that you're ramping up on toilet paper in the beginning or whatever was required. Or in case of Instacart, you know, adding more and more uh, points of presence on their network. And, and to your point, getting more servers and plugging into AWS or whatever else they're using on the back end and all these things. And yet our government agencies are, are uh, let's call them digitally challenged in many cases. It has stopped our ability to uh, execute against the healthcare crisis, that in a lot of ways, this is a healthcare data problem, a healthcare supply chain problem that's exacerbated by a lack of data. Look at the stupidity we've had with all the states competing for PPE because there's no transparency. There's no data sharing. There's no there's no network for figuring this shit out. And so I, I'm just curious from your vantage point, you know, how bad do you think this digital divide between public and private is? Worse than you even expressed. Um, and I'm in 100% agreement with you. And I praise all those companies on a daily basis for helping us avoid uh, the catastrophe we would have had if they didn't step up. And um, it's infuriating to me that so many people talk about how great government is and how bad business is when government has dropped the ball in unemployment claims processing. Distance learning in the schools in California was not successful, whereas in some places it was. Miami-Dade, which is a very poor district, had very good success with distance learning. But in general, we found very bad uh, digital learning in California. And, you know, we're the center of the digital universe. So it's even worse than you just described in my view. Well, and on that one, you know, we've had Eric Yuan on the podcast multiple times, the founder of Zoom. Mm -hmm. And like, holy shit, that company had to scale in an extraordinary, they were a B2B company growing phenomenally. But the minute this thing happened, they became a B2C company. And Eric said, hey, we're going to give our shit to the schools, right? And yeah. all of a sudden, because of their platform and to your point, their ability to scale, they like Instacart, they like Amazon, they like Walmart, they like Costco, they like Home Depot. All these companies use digital technology. Amazon and Walmart have brought on more than 100,000 employees each since this fucking started. Imagine how hard it is to onboard 100,000 people. I know. Can you imagine that? I read that. I just said, how the devil... What an unbelievable management process you must have to be able to onboard that kind of population. But I will tell you, even when Zoom hands those things over to the, to the schools, it's kind of like the, the laptops that were given to schools before. If, you, if the incentives are not right, or if, since there are no market pressures in government-run schools, the only pressure comes from political pressure. And unless legislators are liberated or encouraged to pay attention to the general interest, those things will languish. They will fail. So is the big learning that if we want things to be different, 
citizens have to um, get involved and we have to figure out how, how to give air cover to the politicians that support the changes that we want to have made. And, and that, that requires individual citizens to pony up and support uh, uh, state level uh, politicians and, and, and uh, county or, or city based politicians. Is, is that, is that what you're, is that the sort of the big message? Yes. And it, it doesn't have to be big. It does have to be persistent and it can be, uh, you could, your listeners, somebody could start this up in Santa Cruz. I know everybody here is who around the country, but anywhere they could start their own organization to, to pay particular attention to, let's say one body, a city council or something like that. Know it as well as they know their hobbies and their businesses. Watch every bill that is deliberated upon and how they vote. Learn the donation rules, et cetera. Meet with those legislators and, and learn it and run it like a business. And they will see that over time, it'll take time because the, the, le- the legislators, the politicians will be very skeptical political philanthropists. They're not skeptical of the special interests because they know they have so much money on the line. But the political philanthropists they think of as cocktail party type donors who come and go. So you got to stick with it, but people can do it mm. and stick with mm. it and they'll be successful. Pick a school board. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. And, and is that why ultimately, um, David, you wanted to start your organization was you, you wanted the legislators that you were supporting and or opposing to understand uh, I'm not just a business guy that cares about a topic. We're creating a coalition of people who care about a certain set of things and we're not going anywhere and we're going to support the politicians that that, that um, support what we believe in. And we're going to make life really hard and bad for the politicians that don't. And we're not going anywhere. Yes. And I will tell you along the way, I learned some enormous lessons. I was completely wrong about a number of things like any business. And when I launched it nine years ago, I really thought all we had to do was win six major races. That if we had six new state legislators who were like all Abe Lincoln types, we could convert the California legislature into a truly reform oriented body. And I was wrong. I learned you have to be there forever. You need more than six. You don't need as much money as you thought. It's less about winning elections than persistently supporting legislators who are willing to do the right thing, make trade-offs along the way, et cetera. But you'll notice I keep coming back to this thing about running it like a business. Yep. It's like you and I both found this in our own business. That you're constantly, you know, I know it's a funny word to use, but you're constantly pivoting. Yeah in business because you got to face reality. We live in a, in a world of reality and it's true in this world as well, which is why I keep saying you can't treat it just like a, a protest here and there. You got to run it like a business and that's really hard for people to do. And so if you think about the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and the fight for racial equality that we're living through now, how do you see this playing out? What does it look like through your lens? Unless they focus on the issues that actually affect black lives, like I think education is so critical in that regard, like uh, those specific issues and also policing, where, again, I I do not share this notion of systemic racism, etc. There are some bad cops and there are some good cops that if they don't focus on the details and run that like a business and make sure that you protect legislators who actually pay attention to black kids getting a good education and to black people not being disproportionately or being harmed by police proportionally or disproportionately, then I think it it's just like 
1966 and the Kerner Commission report on Newark. So it, it, it no, ch- no, no major, major change. change. Here are the two things, the two levers that I see. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to my black friends since this happened. And uh, even though I'm a talker, I've tried to bite my tongue and listen a lot harder than I've been talking, uh, particularly with my friends of color. And there's two things that come up. One is the one that you're on, which is education. You know, and we recently had an episode with a guy who leads Mayfield, which is one of the top VCs in Silicon Valley, uh, Naveen Chadra. And, you know, Naveen's an Indian guy. And he talked about his personal path and being able to get a scholarship and go to Stanford and, and, and you know, being able to come from India to come to the United States and, and ultimately become an entrepreneur and then a venture capitalist and be hugely successful. And he stressed education. Mm-hmm. And you sort of look at it and you go, I know there's all this negativity about education and all this sort of stuff, but the reality is we need fair and equal access to legendary education if we're going to create successful people. Do we not? Mm-hmm. I think it's key, especially in the most competitive world ever. Right. This is a dumb time to be dumb. Really? So that's couldn't be a worse time. That's a big lever I see. And 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 in this this new social discussion, I'm not hearing much about that. The other one I'm not hearing about, which is near and dear to my heart, is black entrepreneurs matter. I am a uh, over the top, unapologetic supporter of entrepreneurship because. I got thrown out of school at 18 and with nothing, took it upon myself and materially changed my life. Yeah. And we live in a country where we can do that. And are there barriers and are there? Yes, yes, I get all that. But I've traveled over six million miles on a plane in my fucking life. I have a pretty good idea. This is a very good country if you want to start something from nothing. And, And so... Where are the programs? Where is the focus on entrepreneurship, on teaching people to fish and and stimulating education and entrepreneurship? Like, for example, Naveen was telling me has happened in the Indian community and then access to programs that empower uh, young people who want to go into these areas, want to educate themselves and then ultimately want to start businesses or join budding businesses. Virtually all the job growth in America comes from entrepreneurial and small companies. Mm -hmm. And yet we are at the lowest level of recorded entrepreneurship in American history. And I don't hear anywhere near enough conversation about Hey, if you want to make a difference here, education and entrepreneurship. But I'm curious as to your thoughts. I share your view. I, I mean, couldn't agree more. And that's why I think it's uh, it's politicians are distracting people with uh, things that like you know charges about every systemic racism, etc. When the focus should be on education and and making an opportunity. Those are the two things that work to allow people to advance in our country. And that's why California has been, you know, I told you before that I, you know, we hate whiners at government of California and we hate hypocrites. And the hypocrisy when it comes to this issue is enormous. When you have K through 12, which is in some regards, almost like Soviet style in California. The education code is thick as can be with rules over everything. And I don't know what your view is of charter schools, but at least they're liberated to actually teach kids. Uh, but that's only 10% of the kids in the state. So we need to make sure they have proper funding and that they're liberated to actually teach. And I sort of think the entrepreneurship follows out of 
just creating an environment in which in which there's opportunity. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Do you know Ted Dintersmith by by any chance who wrote uh, What School Could Be? No. No, but I'll write that down. Yeah, he's a fascinating guy. I'm happy to introduce you to him. He's got a great great brain. He's a former VC who like you want to make a difference and and wanted to go into f- making a difference in education. But he didn't want to be like every other business asshole who says, hi, I'm here to help and I'm going to puke all my ideas on you. He educated himself and he literally spent, I forget how much time, David, but a meaningful part of his life. And he traveled to schools in every state to get a sense of what's going on, what's working and what's not working. And he wrote this wonderful book. But the interesting thing, uh, and Ted says a lot of stuff, uh, and I don't want to sort of summarize his whole book with one idea because there's a lot of ideas in there. One of the powerful ones in there that I thought was incredible, he used the word agency a lot, which is sort Mm -hmm. of my memory of his learning was that legendary schools allow kids to have much more agency, much more choice around where to focus. And that there was essentially a baseline set of things that we all should understand and all learn, you know, some base math and you got to learn your alphabet and your spelling and, you know, all the good stuff, history, et cetera. But after a certain base level of knowledge that kids should be able to say, well, you know, I really am attracted to math or I'm really attracted to art or I'm really whatever it is and, and begin to tilt their education based on, on their interests. Uh, but he's a fascinating guy. Oh, I'd like to learn more about it. If you could connect or at least send me what, what to read that he's written. Yeah. But, um, I don't see how anybody can succeed. I mean, my wife and I have two kids who are now 31 and 29. And the number one issue, of course, in raising your kids is after health and things like that is to make sure they have a shot in life. And I don't see uh, if, how you have a shot with that education. Yeah. Well, David, this has been fascinating. I could clearly talk to you for uh, 15 hours about this stuff. Um, <laughs> What you're saying is we need a more engaged citizenry and we need people who are willing to throw in a few bucks to support local uh, and state government um, elected officials that that support the kinds of things we care about. Yes. And then the other thing I hear you saying is uh, pay attention to where the money goes, not where the tweets go. Yeah, not just the money, the actual legislation that they pass. So. Uh, in fact, I would go further. I would say, tell your tell people don't even pay attention to their tweets or what they have to say. It's all actions. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to touch on, David, before we wrap? Yeah, I guess I just would leave everybody with Ben Franklin's remark that it's we have a republic as long as we can keep it. And I hope people uh, get as involved as they possibly can in preserving and protecting their republic. David, you are unbelievable. I really appreciate this uh, this time in your brain. It's been a very uh, educating uh, discussion for me. And uh, it makes me feel good, even if you and I mes- don't necessarily agree on everything. What I love about what you're doing is you're driving an, an important, substantive conversation in a world that feels like it less and less wants to have important, substantive yeah, conversations. Right. And, you know, I don't, maybe, maybe this is a side note, but I, I, as I've gotten older, care less about that somebody says they're a Democrat or a Republican or that they're pro this or anti that or, you know. I care a lot less about that, although that matters. But what I really care about, to your point, is are they a good person? What what are they doing? Right. What difference yeah. are they making? And if we have ideological yeah. differences, great. Let's talk about those. Let's debate them. We should have room to discuss should we or shouldn't we be increasing the pay of uh, prison guards or not. But let's have the fucking discussion. Mm-hmm. And that's what I deeply appreciate about what you're doing.
Well, it's my pleasure. And uh, uh, I hope more people get involved in, in their state and local government. Thank you, David. And I hope you'll be willing to come back at some point down the road. Of course. Thanks for having me today. It was fun. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, there he is, the legendary David Crane. And if you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, uh, we would love it if you shared it with somebody that uh, you think would get some benefit. Now, in times of crisis like this, legendary organizations turn to data. And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. Data is key to to driving the outcomes that we want in our businesses. Splunk helps you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Learn how you can turn data into doing at splunk.com slash D2E, as in data to everything. That's splunk.com slash D2E. And right now, businesses are doing everything they can to make it work in this, uh, this bizarre economy. And today, more than ever, you need every advantage. And that's where my friends at NetSuite come in. They're the world's number one cloud business system, including HR, finance, inventory, and omni-channel e-commerce. So you can manage every penny with precision. So whether you're doing a million dollars or hundreds of millions in sales, NetSuite gives you the visibility and control that you need. And they're offering you an awesome free new guide called the seven actions businesses need to take now and you can get your free product tour at netsuite.com slash different. So to get your free guide, seven actions businesses need to take now and a free tour of NetSuite, go to netsuite.com slash different. All right. We would like to thank David Crane. Thank you so much, David, for a fascinating conversation. You can find him on the internet at governforcalifornia.org. That's governforcalifornia.org. My friends at One Life Fully Lived are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. And I got to tell you, the programs that One Life does for uh, people of color, for underserved communities, and helping to teach resilience and entrepreneurship are stunning. Help us make a difference today at onelifefullylived.org. My friends at bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. They've been physically distancing before that was even a thing. So get a physically distant, dedicated assistant. (laughs) Say that 10 times fast at bottleneck.online today. Uh, A couple podcasts I want to turn you on to. Cloud Wars Live with my friend um, Bob Evans, who will be coming up on an episode here very soon. I'm a regular guest appearing uh, pretty much monthly on Cloud Wars Live. If you're in the tech business, um, it is a must And if you like dialogue podcasts that are unstructured like this one, then you'll like my friend Eric Hunley's podcast called Unstructured. Check it out. My friends at DeVry University have been making a difference for generations. Check out devry.edu today. And if you're in the B2B space in Silicon Valley, it's time to conquer your category with a brand new website from my friends at Atranet. Visit atre.net today. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. Uh, Warning, the creators of this oddcast were probably consuming libations. Speaking of libations, we are produced and edited by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. Uh, And you can check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. It's one of my favorites, and I love it. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do technical execution, build lockhead.com and other awesomeness around here. Show notes by Diane Gervasio and Candy Dandy keeps all the trains running on time. Remember, black lives do matter. Spread podcasts, not viruses. 
Wash your hands and keep them up and your chin down. Tom Waits was right. Uh, remember that education is expensive, but nothing's more costly than stupidity. Only buy pasture-raised free-range eggs because chickens are people, too. Uh, love you, Mom and Dad, and hey, Colin. This oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Grant Cardone. Sorry, Grant. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Thanks for investing part of your life with us. Uh, stay legendary, stay healthy, and until we're together again, follow your different.